Well, if you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew, we continue on in a second part on the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. And if you'll turn as well and put your fingers in Matthew chapter 19, our main text, verses 1 through 12. We'll be looking at the teaching of Jesus on this particular subject. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Here Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 19, he reiterates the teaching that he had previously given. And one thing to note before we begin our scripture reading is as we come to a subject such as this, we come to a subject that I realize that it is a sensitive subject for many. And as I mentioned before, none of us are are immune to not knowing individuals. We all know individuals, perhaps as part of our family history or whatnot, that have come across the difficulties of marriage, divorce, or remarriage. And so when we do, we look at the scriptures and we ask ourselves, what does God say? And it is often tempting to view things, whether it is conflict or money or marriage or whatever it may be, children, through the lens of our own experience. And yet, when we come to the Word of God, we desire that God speak and we divide the Word of God carefully. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, it reads this. It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words... He departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and 
there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. Our God in heaven, we pray, Father, for understanding that you would be honored the teaching of your word. Open our eyes, O God, that we might see great and mighty things from thy law. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. An annual publication entitled The State of Our Unions monitors the current health and marriage and family life in America. It's produced by the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia in conjunction with the Center for Marriage and Families at the Institute of American Values. And it publishes this, I believe, every year. And the key finding this past year is that the divorce rate today is nearly twice that of that of 1960 although it has declined since its peak in 1980. It is so commonplace and so frequent that probably, as I mentioned before, no one here has not been affected by it. No one here doesn't know someone is related to someone who has faced this very difficult relationship in marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Divorce has destroyed many marriages, it has ruined families, separated people from God, and at its root is the result of sin. Had not sin entered the world, then we would not have marriages that have fallen apart. Marriages would be perfect, but it has had its far-reaching and lifelong consequences to people. Sometimes the people who have been the most affected have been the children. And depending upon their age, they respond in different ways and the consequences of divorce. They face the the fear of abandonment. They face difficulties in making decisions later on. They face the suffering of depression oftentimes, having difficulty sleeping, being more irritable. Sometimes they will find that they desire more entertainment, more television, more video games, a way of escape of fantasy in which a world is more perfect than the one that they have lived through. Perhaps they have sometimes avoided conflict at all costs. They have struggled with insecurities and anxieties. It's a well-known statistic as well that children of divorce oftentimes respond later on in life the same way parents have, that running from marital difficulties versus working them out. Many times... People will be tempted to blame God, to blame the Word of God, to reject God. The effects are far-reaching and affects families, affects children, affects friendships, affects the church, affects a person's relationship with God. How people respond, though, oftentimes is related to their own relationship with God and how they see God, and how they respond to the Word of God. And so as we look at God's ideal this morning for marriage, we see God's desire for us that we might respond in a godly way and that we might help others respond in a way that pleases God and God's ideal for marriage. But when we speak of the subject of divorce, 
There are four predominant views as to how people view this particular subject. One particular view that is common in our day is that divorce and remarriage can be permitted on any, under any circumstance. It is a secular view of our culture. In fact, all 50 of our states in our country now, with New York being the last to sign into law just this past month, a no divorce or no fault divorce law. Anyone in any state in the union can now leave their spouse under any basis. There is no need to justify it. Before, on a fault type of position, one would have to show that their spouse had committed adultery, had abandoned the marriage, had committed a felony or some other act like that. But now a person can divorce someone else for any cause. As I mentioned to you last week, some would even leave their marriage on Oprah.com. They responded because they're simply bored. They cannot say, well, you know, it's for such and such a reason. They don't have to state these days. And some Christians have adopted that view that one can divorce and one can remarry on any basis. But among Bible teachers, among commentators, among theologians, that has never been a dominant view. So they adopted one of the other three views. And second view that is often commonly adopted is that there is no divorce and no remarriage ever at all for any reason whatsoever. A third view would be that some could divorce in certain cases, but never remarry. Divorce in certain cases, but never remarry. And fourthly, a fourth view is that they can divorce and remarry under certain circumstances. That of abandonment and adultery. Where there is a biblical divorce, there can be a biblical remarriage, that fourth view holds. So this morning, as we continue to look at the reading of Scripture in Matthew chapter 19, we have come off of the first part when we've looked at 1 Corinthians. And just as a review for you, to understand the background of, of the writing of that time, we looked at last week the biblical backdrop of marriages during that time. We understood that there were different types of marriages that, that happened. There was the contraburnium type of marriage, which was a tent companionship, which is what that term meant. A tent companionship in which two slaves would be paired up, or perhaps a slave and a free man. And that would be the type of marriage that would be called a contraburnium and arranged by slave owners. And then there would be the usus, which was the common law marriage. Two people who lived together for about a year. If the wife or the woman was not living away from the husband for more than three days, then it was considered that they were married, this man and this woman. The usus. Then there was the coemptio in manum. Remember, that was the type of marriage that was the, the arranged type of a marriage. The type of marriage which, in which a father would, would sell his daughter in marriage for a dowry. But then there was a fourth type of marriage, which was called the conferatio. The type of marriage which was among those of the noble class. Those of the patrician class. And in the conferatio, it would be the type of marriage in which a person would have a best man. There would be a maid of honor. There would be a bouquet of flowers. There would be vows that would be exchanged. There would even be a cake. And that was adopted by the Roman Catholic Church. They added Christian vestiges to that. It passed through the Reformation onto Protestantism and is the ceremony that we use today. 
the patrician class or the noble class of marriage. So we know that in that time, during biblical times, marriage was common. But in that day as well, divorce was also commonplace. In fact, it would not be unheard of for someone to have been divorced and remarried 20 times or more. Even under the most noble type of marriage, the confratio or the patrician class. And so, when we look at that type of a backdrop, we understand that marriage and divorce it was, completely, it was completely common. And in that day as well, with the immorality, and we looked at the Corinthian church as well. In that Corinthian church, it was often that people would divorce and remarry. And some began to think maybe it was better to be single. Or maybe it was better to be married and yet not have uh, relations, physical relations in their marriage. And there was confusion. And that is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 what he did about marriage. And he held up in that passage, as we looked at last week, God's standard. And he said that a man should not divorce his wife and that a wife should not leave her husband. That was God's standard. And we looked at Malachi 2.16, in which God expresses his desire that he hated divorce. And he hates divorce today. And yet, because some of the Corinthians, you remember, were in an unequally yoked situation... He gave the instruction that what? If that non-Christian chooses to remain in the marriage, they are not to divorce. But if they should choose to leave that marriage, then the believer should let them go. And that marriage is dissolved. And we call that abandonment. When the un an unbeliever, the non-Christian has left the marriage, has abandoned the marriage. And this morning we look at another key passage. Another key passage in Matthew chapter 19 regarding Jesus' teaching on the subject of divorce. So we look at the context here in verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into a region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him there and he healed them there. Now, to give you a brief context, Jesus had been preaching and teaching and healing for two years up until this point of time in Galilee, which is in northern Palestine. And it was a very public ministry. And up until this time, this is a pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus because he continues to minister to people, but he is coming to the time when he will be crucified on the cross and his ministry begins to diminish in terms of its public ministry. He begins to teach the 12 disciples soon after this. But here he goes east and then south on his way to Jerusalem, passing through a region which is beyond the Jordan, which has become known as the region of Perea in the Bible. And there he will minister to many people who will come as pilgrims to the Passover in Jerusalem. And along with all of these people that he is ministering to, come this tag-along, tag-along folks who are his arch enemies, who are the Pharisees. Verse 3. And they posed to him a question. They came to Jesus, it says, testing him and asking him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, here were the Pharisees. They were the largest, most influential of the religious sects of that day. There were four sects. 
There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. But the Pharisees by far were the largest and most influential of all of them. And they had always sought to undermine Jesus, to trap Him in His words, to, 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 to discredit Him, to test Him. And here in so doing, He was posed a question. Why was He an enemy to them? Because He came. And we read in chapter 5, you have heard that it was said. You realize when you see that phrase in, in the Beatitudes, or I'm sorry, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was teaching in one of his very first sermons there, he began to say, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He does that over and over again because he was correcting the teachings of the Pharisees who had, who had turned the Word of God to their advantage. And had twisted the word of God. And often it was advantageous to them. And they had set up a legalistic system of man-made values. And Jesus came along to clarify what God intended. And because of that, he infuriated them. Because he was implying, of course, correcting their wrong teaching. And here he addresses the subject of divorce. Now in that day... There were two primary schools of thought when it came to divorce. Two rabbis were prominent who had taught different views. There was Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai represented a minority opinion. And his opinion was this when it came to divorce. He said, no divorce under any circumstance for any reason. And that wasn't held by the Pharisees. The Pharisees championed Rabbi Hillel. Not Rabbi Shemal. Shemai, Rabbi Hillel said, well, you know what? You can divorce for any reason. He had died about 20 years before Jesus came on the scene. But he taught that a person could divorce his wife for any reason. Permissible for taking down her hair in public. For talking to other men. For burning the bread. For putting too much salt on the food. For talking poorly of her mother-in-law. And for even... Not being able to bear children, one could divorce his wife. And so when Jesus came to Perea, the, the Pharisees saw this as an opportunity. And strategically, they thought to themselves, why this question here? Because he's in Perea. And in Perea, the ruler or the governor of that area was Herod Antipas. Remember Herod Antipas? Herod Antipas had what? had seduced Herodias away from his brother. Herodias was Philip's wife. He had seduced Herodias away and John the Baptist came and he condemned that marriage because it was what? That which was what? Adulterous. And so Herod Antipas put him in prison and later on he beheaded him. And so it was in that same region that Jesus came. And undoubtedly the Pharisees saw this as an opportunity to test him, to ask him this particular question. So that he could answer, implicating himself as against Herod Antipas. And perhaps in the Pharisee's mind, face the same fate of beheading. So they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Of course, this was, as I mentioned, uh, consistent with Rabbi Hillel's position. Sort of a no-fault type of approach. So after this opening salvo to Jesus... Jesus answered them in verse 4, and he said, Have you not read he who created them from the beginning? And he quotes 
from the Old Testament. Don't you see? He says to these Pharisees who prided themselves on knowing the Scriptures, He said to them, Don't you Pharisees know the Word of God? Don't you know what God has intended marriage to be? And He gives four reasons here why divorce was never a part of God's plan. He tells them it was a spiritual plan. One man, one woman. God's plan from the beginning. God made them that way from creation. It was a spiritual plan. He said it was a spiritual bond. A man shall not leave, shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleave to his wife. It is a spiritual union, a spiritual cleaving together with one another. Thirdly, it is a spiritual unity. Not simply a spiritual plan and a bonding, but a unity. The two shall become one flesh. There was a unity between the husband and the wife. They are joined together in one flesh. And it is, above all, a spiritual marriage, a marriage that God has made. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. One commentator writes, From the very first marriage of Adam and Eve, God has joined together every husband and wife. Marriage is, first of all, God's institution and God's doing. Regardless of how men may corrupt it and deny or disregard his part in it, whether it is between faithful believers or between rank pagans or atheists, whether it was arranged by the parents or by the mutual desire and consent of the bride and groom, marriage as a general social relationship is above all the plan and work of God. For the procreation, the pleasure, and the preservation of the race. Whether it is entered into wisely or foolishly, sincerely or insincerely, selfishly or unselfishly, with great or little commitment, God's design for every marriage is that it be permanent until the death of one of the spouses. Unquote. Above all, God makes marriage. It is a God-made institution. And because of that, no one can say, Oh, I chose the wrong person. Or we both agreed and it's for our best. Or we don't love one another anymore. And that would be the basis of a dissolution of the marriage. Simply put, because a husband and wife agree to a divorce, doesn't break a union... That union was made by God in a spiritual plan, in a spiritual bonding, a spiritual unity, and a spiritual marriage. And that is aptly communicated in the vows that you hear when people go to a wedding and they say, Till death do us part, or as long as we both shall live, not as long as we both shall love, or as long as we both get along. It is for as long as we both shall live. And that is why the officiating minister will say, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And after that response, the Pharisees pose another question. And they say to Jesus, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? The reference they're referring to is in Deuteronomy 24. So if you turn in your Bibles to the beginning there, Deuteronomy chapter 24, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of 
the Bible. From the very beginning, Genesis 24, we look at verses 1 through 4. The Pharisees refer to this particular passage in the Old Testament. It says in verse 1, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And it is this passage that the Pharisees misunderstood, misinterpreted and misapplied in the instruction given by God. They asked the question, why did Moses command, give her a certificate of divorce? The fact of the matter is, when you look at those passages and those verses, there is no command that neither recommends nor commends or condemns divorce. In fact, the passage merely gives a procedure as to what needs to be done. And the command and the point of the passage is in relationship to remarriage. Is a wife who has left her first husband married to a second husband, and that second husband either divorces her or he dies, is she allowed to go back to the first? And the answer is no. The command is found in verse 4, where the wife is remarried. And that is clarified by Jesus in verses 8 and 9, showing God's gracious concession because of sin. God's gracious concession regards to sin in Matthew chapter 19. He says to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. And God's gracious concession in that phrase there suggests a stubborn refusal to repent. A stubborn refusal to repent because of a hardness of heart. Moses permitted this. We saw in the Old Testament, God does not require always, as was the penalty often for adultery, that of death. God didn't always require death. He allowed divorce as a gracious concession and allowed that for the innocent party to be free to marry again and for the sinner to repent. And Jesus clarifies this concession for divorce by giving the condition upon which a legitimate divorce may occur, except for immorality, he says. Except for immorality. And again, last week we looked at the subject of abandonment, which would be the second. But that word immorality here that Jesus says here, uses, is the word porneia. It is the word from which we get the word pornography. And it's a broad term referring to any, any type of illicit sexual activity. And in marriage, it is always constituted as adultery. But the disciples, they hear this. And they have extreme difficulty with this. The disciples said to him, if a relationship between a man and his wife is like this, it's better not to get married. To us, you see, being faithful to one's spouse. You hear that so often times in in, in weddings. 
the encouragement to do so, to encouragement to stay as one for a lifetime. To us, it seems like it's very, very common. We hear that in vows that are made, we're reminded of that during weddings, but to the disciples, they were shocked. The disciples, they were surprised. They said, it's better not to marry. It's because the rabbis of that day had placed divorce at such a high level, the same level as marriage, that it was perhaps sometimes virtuous. One rabbi in the Talmud, and Talmud is the rabbinic writings, wrote, quote, A bad wife is like leprosy to the husband. What is the remedy? Let him divorce her and be cared of this leprosy. Another wrote, quote, If a man has a bad wife, it is his religious duty to divorce her, unquote. And with that type of teaching floating around during Jesus' day, it's no wonder why the disciples were surprised. Boy, if this type of commitment is required, a commitment for a lifetime, it's better not to be married. It's better not to be married, they thought. God's intention, though, Jesus sets out, is for a lifelong marriage of faithfulness to one's spouse. And even though there may be adultery that may be grounds for divorce, it is neither required nor necessarily recommended. And in that case, if reconciliation can occur, it is the better route. Forgiveness is always mandatory. Forgiveness is always required. When adultery has occurred, but it is better to reconcile than to divorce. The disciples began to think, though, maybe it's better to be single. Maybe it's better not to be married at all. And Jesus continues on in Matthew 19, speaking of eunuchs. He says some eunuchs were born that way, with physiological, uh, physiological difficulties. The others were made that way. In ancient times, they made some to be eunuchs, those kings and rulers, in order that they might watch their harem. That was a pagan idea. Then there were those who voluntarily abstained, who made eunuchs of themselves, who chose a celibate life in order to serve God. And we learned before in 1 Corinthians 7, God has given to some the gift of singleness such that they do not need or desire to be married. God said in that passage that it is a gift for those to be single. It is also a gift for those to be married. And Jesus said, in effect, if a person has that gift of singleness, they should accept that. But to those whom marriage has been given, they are to also accept the standard by which God has given. And that standard is faithfulness to one's spouse and to live according to the word. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. One last passage today. If we look at the subject, Hebrews 13, verse 4. And how we are to view marriage. For in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, it says marriage, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Marriages are made in heaven. They're union ratified by God. They're intended to be lifelong. And that is why it is healthy for married individuals to place boundaries around themselves that preserve and protect their marriage. Never allowing someone else to be closer to your spouse than you. Or never, especially somebody who is a member of the opposite gender. 
and being aware of never placing yourself in a compromising situation or being careful to protect your eyes from the things that you view, whether it's that of sitcoms or music that you listen to or R-rated movies or magazines or the internet, whatever it may be, protect one's eyes so that one's heart might not fall into adultery. Boundaries such as dressing modestly so that you might not cause others to stumble. Boundaries in terms of the activities that you choose, the entertainment that you choose, the vacation spots that you go to, wherever it might be. Why? To protect and to preserve the marriage that God has given to you, the gift that God has given to you, to protect yourself and your family from pain and suffering and the judgment of God. And it is healthy to do so. It is healthy to put those boundaries around your marriage. It is healthy to resolve conflicts. Because unresolved conflicts is like building a wall brick by brick by brick until you cannot have that type of communication with your spouse as God has intended. But as I said last week, where divorce has occurred because of adultery or abandonment, God is gracious and God is concessionary in that there can be remarriage. Because where a biblical divorce has occurred, a biblical remarriage may happen. Where an unbiblical divorce has occurred, even God is gracious in that. Though one might not be able to remarry, God's grace is that He extends forgiveness and He extends mercy. For there is nothing that none of us has done. No one is perfect and there is no wrong that one has done that God does not forgive for those who would come. For James has reminded us we all stumble in many ways in James 3.2. And if we confess our sins, John writes, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For no one is perfect and no one is sinless. And people who are not divorced are not better or inherently better than those who have been. Just as people, those as Paul has said, those who are married are not better than those who are single. And being single is not better than those who are married. They are both gifts of God. There are those who are forgiven and have lived in the grace of God. And God is gracious and God is merciful to the humble in heart who come to say to God in obedience... And live by God's obedient word, God's word that we can live a successful life, married or unmarried, divorced or not, that we can walk in the ways of God. And in so doing, God can bless and God can extend his healing and reconciliation with God can occur first and then with others that we desire to live at peace as God has commanded us to with our spouse and with those around us. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that you would continue to teach us your word. I pray, O oh Father, that you would strengthen, strengthen the marriages that are here. And that, Father, your grace would be poured out upon us as we look to you. And, Father, may we always live by the ideal that of being faithful to our spouse, of protecting our marriages, of being people of fidelity. For you have called us to be people who reflect 
your character. In Jesus' name, amen.